G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and here's a big dangerous idea that every single Australian man, woman and child, not child, they can't vote, man and woman and other non-man, woman, man, she, man, and one of the, all, all of the voting people in Australia will soon be asked, nay, required to vote on. The idea that Australia should change its constitution to create a formal body in which First Nations Australians could uh, express their will, their opinion, on bills that may come before the parliament that affect First Nations people. Uh, this would be a very, very big deal. And uh, it's not very free, very often that Australia comes together to try to change its founding document or that any country comes together to try to hold a national referendum to change its founding document. So I thought it would be time to speak to someone who understands this issue uh, better than anyone. Jack Lattimore is um, the Aboriginal Affairs journalist at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. These are the the large broadsheets in Australia and can give us the most impartial understanding uh, of all of the the people who I know of the pros and cons, the yeses and the nos, the facts and the fictions which he's been studying about this proposal. A little bit of background first. Um First Nations Australians are the oldest continuous civilization in the world. Um, there are a great many different nations on the landmass and the waters and islands of Australia, and therefore it has not historically been um, a simple question of like, oh, let's just make a treaty necessarily. Not that there's ever been a huge push for a treaty, but to the extent that there was, it's not been like, for example, the First Nations people in New Zealand, the Maori, who are much, much more recent and much more ethnically homogenous uh, as a people with whom one could negotiate. So we find, find ourselves in 2023 in a situation where you have these civilizations of kind of vast complexity and geographic diversity and ethnic and linguistic diversity across this enormous landmass. And the uh, attempt to try to get our arms around the needs of these communities is uh, to establish this this body. The idea of which comes out of the Uluru Statement of the Heart that was a constitutional convention which ended with this statement called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, this took place in 2017, a national constitutional convention to really try to seriously address and reckon with Australia's genocidal founding sins. And more importantly, perhaps, to actually address the disadvantage and the lived reality of uh, what it means to be a First Nations person in Australia, which generally means that you are uh, subjected to all kinds of disadvantage that other communities are not. You don't live as long, your water is likely to be dirtier, you're likely to have less access to healthcare, you're likely to have less access to housing. There are across a whole number of metrics. Uh, Australia is performing woefully in terms of its treatment of Indigenous Australians. That's just a statistical kind of demographic reality that has proved incredibly intransigent uh, for decades, uh, well, for centuries, except nobody in power cared about it until decades ago. And even since they have uh, started caring about it, their attempted remedies, as Jack will explain, have fallen short. 
you'll hear Jack talk about closing the gap. Uh, this is a, a lingo in Australia that if you're not Australian, you may not be familiar with. It's just about closing the gap between Indigenous outcomes and uh, non-Indigenous outcomes in Australia across all of those kinds of metrics. So measurable ways of closing, for example, the gap between life expectancy and so on. So the Uluru Statement from the Heart, have a listen to it. I, I want you to hear Professor Megan Davis, who was a member of the Referendum Council in 2017, when they finally come together, they hammer together this statement. It's not very long. It's a few minutes long, three or four minutes long. They hammer together this statement that basically encapsulates the past, present and future of how they see First Nations people in Australia. Here's Professor Megan Davis for the first time in history on the floor of the First Nations Constitutional Convention in 2017. The Uluru Statement from the Heart. We gathered here at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion. The ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise that peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sov sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly, plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. 
we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to, to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country, and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So there you have it, uh, Professor Megan Davis, a member of the Referendum Council, reading out the Uluru Statement from the Heart for the first time on the floor of the First Nations Constitutional Convention in 2017. And you will have heard her say, we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. A voice. Meaning, in practice, a formal body, which will have First Nations representatives on it, which will make representations to Parliament. It can be overruled, right? This, in fact, I'll read to you now what we're actually voting on in this referendum. So the referendum question on October 14th will be, you'll have to say yes or no to this question. A proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, do you approve this proposed alteration? And you will say yes or you will say no. That's all it'll say on the referendum. Now, what's the actual amendment? What would, how would the Constitution actually be changed? So the, the insertion, the phrase that would be inserted into the Constitution would read as follows. Chapter 9, Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples. 129, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. And it would say, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, and then it'll list three points. One, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Three, the Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have the power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. So that's the amendment. Point one says we bring into being this body of uh, First Nations people, and we're calling it the voice. Point two says, if that body wants to, it can make representations, recommendations, uh, advice to two of these, two of the branches of government, the parliament and then the executive, uh, on matters relating to First Nations Australians, right? And then point three is, 
that the parliament is where is is the, still the body that has the power to figure out what the voice is, right? The voice doesn't have any power to decide how many people it has or how what constitutes it or how much it gets paid or whatever. Point three says the parliament has the power to make laws regarding that thing. Now, you will note in none of those three points does it say anything about the parliament or the executive being obliged to listen to the voice. It just says that there's going to be a body called the voice. The voice may make representations to the government about issues that affect First Nations people and that the parliament will have the power to make laws about this body. But it can't get rid of the body because the body's establishment is in the constitution. That's what we're voting on. Now, nothing is simple, especially when it comes to difficult issues like race. And so it has gone initially perhaps back in sort of 2017 at the time of the Constitutional Convention from being a question of like, here are our, here is our request as Indigenous people, please, citizens of goodwill in Australia, come along with us and follow us into the future. And it has changed from that into, well, maybe the voice isn't enough, maybe it's too much, maybe... Uh, we as First Nations uh, people actually should be asking for things that are more detailed and on the ground, like improvements in conditions and closing the gap, rather than this uh, sort of uh, bureaucratic body that could get co-opted by a special interest anyway. Or maybe why are we bothering with a bureaucratic body when the whole artifice of parliament and uh, the executive and the Australian state are all founded on the blood of genocide anyway and they haven't recognised sovereignty officially and we should really have a treaty and it's becoming a cacophony. It's becoming an unhelpful cacophony. And I I just want you to listen to Jack and anyone else who you want to listen to who is measured and well-informed about this. I'm not proposing a particular position one way or another on whether this referendum is a good idea or a bad idea. I just want whatever the decision that people make to be one that is based on reason and not based on bullshit. So without further ado, please enjoy the one and only Jack Lattimore. Can you take us back, uh, Jack, before to, to sort of what led to the voice to Parliament in the first place? Because there'll be some people listening to this who are super in the weeds of it, and then some people who uh, might live abroad who are hearing about it for the first time. What's the genesis of it? How far do you want to go back is really the question to answer well, that question. Some <laughs> Less than 60,000 years. Okay, yeah, all right. No, don't have to go that far. But, look, it's been around no. um, the thinking of it and um, various forms of a representational body. Um, it's been there for at least, well, 67, definitely. Um, 1967 was the last yeah, yeah, referendum yeah. that dealt with this. Well, it, it didn't deal with this issue. That was a different uh, subject matter. I mean, I guess the question of, the question of uh, Australia's but, posture towards its First Nation people. Yeah, around that period, um, there were bodies like FICATSI, um, and I don't know the acronym, so don't ask me to pull that one apart, but um, 
it was you know Aboriginal advancement or Aboriginal rights advancement group, but it was largely steered by um, you know white fellas. Um, so from about sixty seven, we start to see uh, self determination, <clears throat> which went by you know black power. Same thing, same same. Um, really, you know, arrive in Australia and uh, Aboriginal people begin to take hold of the wheel and, you know, of these sorts of organisations. Um, and then you had a number of these representational bodies um, come up. None of them were enshrined. That's the big difference. None of them were enshrined in the Constitution. But, um, you know, there was a succession of them and a swap and change which with each um, incoming government. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, early 70s after Whitlam, um, sort of brought in. That's considered to be the start of the self-determination period. Um, and that continued as known as the, or recognised as the self-determination period um, for, you know, some decades um, and really kind of only changed when we're looking at, uh, you know, the reign of John Howard coming in, I would say. Um and yeah, periods before that were like protectionist periods, um, assimilation periods. So there's a, there's a few that are kind of. And you know, what term what there. changed during the uh, the Howard uh, government? So that was uh, for, for non Australians. John Howard was a a long serving conservative prime minister who served during the. Um, I guess it overlapped mostly with the George W. Bush administration in the United States. Uh, what changed towards First Nations Australians then? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, they weren't real keen on self-determination very much. Um, there was a body called ATSIC, which was Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander uh, Commission, I think, um, ATSIC. Uh, that was a representative body, democratically elected to some extent, um, and kind of it's, it's tricky to get a bead on exactly how it was, um, you know, whether there was – Goodwill towards it um, from the Aboriginal community I'm talking about. Uh, you kind of get a range of opinions across the spectrum there, but generally speaking, um, it was considered a good thing and useful. Um, but the Howard government um, went about uh, dismantling it over a period until it finally, with the support of the Labor government, needs to be added, um, pulled the pin on it in, I want to say, 2004. Four, five. Um, and from that point on, and ATSIC was kind of like the last one of that succession of rep uh, representational bodies that I talked about before. Kind of, uh, well, you, you did have the Congress, National Congress of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders that came later, but same, same, but different. Um, but with pulling the pin on ATSIC, um, that really started to... Aboriginal people thinking that um, one of these bodies needed to be uh, developed, established in a way that it couldn't easily be knocked over by any incoming government, um, and that is right. enshrining it in the constitution. So the thinking, um, the most current thinking, uh, probably goes back to about then, um, and then with if you jump ahead a few years, around 2010, I think it was, um, with Gillard coming in, uh, she asked, uh, well, she appointed an expert panel 
to explore a number of things um, around constitutional recognition. Some of the things they explored involved this Indigenous voice idea. And then between 2011 um, through to the present, uh, there was, like a, and again, a succession of reports, um, expert panels, uh, joint select committees investigating the idea. Um, so, yeah, it's been around. It's safe to say that this uh, proposed model of the uh, Indigenous voice has been thrashed around uh, to and fro for over 15 years, probably getting closer to 20 and Jack, the, this idea of uh, so the, let, let's just look at the end of ATSIC for a moment because it, it'll be helpful in, in people understanding the the rationale behind doing this as a referendum and a constitutional amendment rather than through legislature. So the criticism of and just to fact check myself, John Howard was PM from ninety six to two thousand and seven. ATSIC abolished in two thousand four, but actually, well, the, the law was passed in two thousand four. It was yeah. actually it was abolished in two thousand five. And at right. the time, there was there was criticism that this had become a very bureaucratic kind of centralised Canberra uh, bureaucracy that didn't address the uh, yeah, the yeah. aspirations of of First Nations people in regional Australia. Was there truth to that criticism, or do you regard that as a fig leaf for getting rid of it? No, that's we're seeing the same thing now. That same rhetoric now is what they deployed back then, um, and also surrounding. Uh, the period where it was abolished. Um, similarly to today, it could be argued, there was a lot of disinformation around it being a corrupt or a corrupt body as well. None of those accusations and allegations are founded in fact. None of them. Uh, and in terms of it being a bureaucratic, um, you know, encumbrance, um, you know, it varied. It was no more or less than other... Uh, you know, bodies or other organisations um, that were similar in size and nature to what it did. But, uh, you know, the Howard government had it in for the idea of this body and potentially, um, possibly, some of the characters that uh, were prominent on it in its last days. Um, so, yeah, they kind of, you know, went about dismantling it over months, years, until it got to the point where, it, yeah, they pulled the pin on it. Um, it was missed when it was gone. Um, you know, I remember being in community uh, probably around, when was that, before I went to uni, so it would have been 91, 92, and um, it was you know, considered um, favourably within those communities and had community leaders within those communities uh, excited, enthusiastic about um, running as, as candidates um, going back in the recesses of my mind to remember some of this stuff, but yeah, it was you know it was held in a, it was esteemed, put it that way. Um, if it wasn't high regard, it was considered to have some esteem about it. Um, but yeah, it kind of towards at the end, um, there was so much uh, I would say I would describe as disinformation floating about in the media um, and parliament. Um, that, you know, it construed an image of it that uh, was sticky enough to remain in the thinking of a lot of people. And as I said, none of the accusations and allegations about it ever, ever proved to be true. 
I mean, I don't know what accusations or allegations yet we'd have to go through a litany, and I'm not interested in focusing yeah. on that that much, but just for the listener to be aware, there was a review that was commissioned by the Howard government in 2003. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the authors of that review, John Hannaford, uh, Jackie Huggins, Bob Collins, uh, and it recommended that more control should be given back to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the regions. Uh, The Indigenous Affairs Minister at the time, Amanda Vanstone, said that uh, that review, you know, basically shows that ATSIC hadn't been connecting well with Indigenous Australians and wasn't serving them well. Uh, So we Mm. could pick it apart bit by bit, but there was a, a certain level of suspicion not just among the government, but also among the people doing that review and among some Indigenous Australians themselves about whether ATSIC was doing the best job that it could. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you got different communities um, that had representatives on it and some of those communities probably felt that uh, other communities were being uh, heard more by the board or by the, you know, uh, the thrust of ATSIC. Um, so, you know, you're always going to get that doesn't matter what organisation and what complexion of the organisation either. So now this rationale for a, a representative body comes about, and what and is can you can you articulate for us what your understanding of the no campaigns are before we get to the yes? Uh well, I mean. Yes, I can. I mean, the, if we go with what is beginning to be called uh, from some people, uh, far be it for me to come up with these sort of things, but uh, the elite no campaign, uh, these are the terms that researchers are putting uh, to it in their in their research. Um, their concern around it is, well, where do you want to start? I mean, lack of detail. Well, why, don't, they, why don't we they start? keep going yeah, on what, about lack of detail. Why don't we start with the two, there are, there are, correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, broadly sort of two no's within First Nations Australians that strike me as almost being opposite critiques. Uh, one represented by people like Senator Lydia Thorpe, uh, another represented by people like Senator Jacinta Price. Um, and we can deal with the sort of white Australia objections to the referendum as as well, if you want later. But I'm more interested in your insights into where those two positions are coming from. Can is that a way to frame it? Uh, look, it could be. I mean, there are claims that Lydia Lydia has claimed herself that she leads a Black sovereignty movement. Um, that Black sovereignty movement doesn't exist as a cohesive movement. Um, you know, I don't think that has been uh, established as clearly as what it probably needs to be. Um, you know, there's certainly Aboriginal people, just put aside um, Lydia Thorpe, there's certainly Aboriginal people in different communities out there um, that have what I would describe as legitimate uh, apprehensions around a government policy, you know, stop you know, full stop. But when it comes to voice, they are sceptical because of, um, you know, past experiences of government policies, um, hoodwinking or attempting to hoodwink, um, you know, their aspirations and rights. Um, Some of that is rooted in, um, you know, well, basically to go with the rhetoric from 
some of these groups that describe themselves as black so many groups, uh, which again, you'd kind of got to look at a little bit more uh, critically because um, when they talk about sovereignty, there's different understandings of what sovereignty is and that's kind of elusive in the conversation as well. A bit like chasing smoke. Um, But, yeah, just, you know, in general, there are groups out there that are concerned that uh, things like land justice should be more at the forefront um, than things like a voice. Um, But, you know, these are views on um, who should be heading up or on representative of uh, Aboriginal areas and communities um, at the expense of other identities that, you know. um, And there's a fair bit of uh, imported conspiracist thinking that has informed some of those groups, Um, and I'm thinking in particular of sovereign citizen type uh, conspiracy theories uh, that, you know, the constitutional, I mean, this is a topic that we could um, stagger through for hours, and none of it would be any clearer. And some of it. Have is, you listened to this show? I do tend yeah. to have a habit of staggering through <laughs> topics for hours and uh, getting nowhere. Yeah, I mean, this is. Uh, there's so many Warren holes um, when you go. Well, let me here's a, let me get, let me throw one uh, case study at you that I thought was interesting. It um it was an ABC report from Gama, and one of the characters uh, who they were interviewing about the voice is this young bloke named Ben, who was a, he's a, he's a First Nations Aussie and he was, he was a, an enthusiastic voice supporter. And now he's a hard no. Well, he was a reluctant supporter and now he's a hard no. And he says this, he says, quote, it's not born out of black ambition. It's born out of what's acceptable for constitutional conservatives. The idea that the people who stole this land and then who directly benefited from it are now going to have a referendum to think about recognizing the people they stole it off is insane. He says, they say it's a first step. Like, how mediocre is that for 235 years plus of brutal subjugation? It's not, and we don't have time. And he says, you know, and then the reporter says, I mean, sure, you may say that the referendum is too small and too slow and a distraction from recognising the inherent rights of First Nations people uh, that would underpin ongoing sovereignty. But the reporter says a no vote would, you know, uh, would set it back. And he says he doesn't think so. He says, you know, like a bushfire will come through and it'll ravage the entire scene. But you come (laughs) back to that site six months later and you see that green bursting through. That is as good a, a, like an articulation as I've heard of that side of no. What do you make of it? Uh, It's rubbish. And I know Ben, um, seen him up at Karma. Um, had a had a chat and all that, so you know it's there's nothing personal in in my assessment of that view, but it it doesn't stand up. Um, if and I'm not advocating for or against, but just purely uh, in terms of you know a vote in the referendum, but mm. purely on what is most likely um, interpretation or perspective on what will unfold in either scenario, if the referendum is unsuccessful, there will be no other opportunity um, to establish a representative group, uh, a representative body, sorry, um, 
in similar nature to what is being proposed. And it, it won't be for decades. And if, you know, it's, it's a worn track now, but if we look back to 99 with the Republic referendum, that fell over for whatever reason. You don't even have to go in there. But it fell over and it hasn't been revisited yet. Mm. So it's generation. If we consider a generation to be 20 years or whatever, um, it's a generation before you'll ever see anything remotely come around maybe. Um, but it does. I mean, I remember. I remember Jack. Sorry to interrupt, but I remember during the refer- the Republic referendum having an argument with a fellow Republican. I was at uni at the time, and uh, and she was saying, "Well, you know, if because she, she wanted to be a popularly elected president, she didn't like this yeah. model, but she was a yeah. Republican, and you know, I don't know if you remember the the slogan for the No campaign was." Uh, mm. Let the people have their say, meaning like, you know, let's have another kind of republic. You don't need this elite yeah. republic. Let's have a one where the people have their say. She said, you know, it'll come around. She was like, you know, give it, it's inevitable. Give it, you know, another three years, five years, we'll just do it again. Yeah. Uh, doesn't work like yeah, that. Doesn't work like that. And I think that's a lot of people that I've heard express, um, you know, the Kind of buy into that. We'll we'll do it again. They, they are younger, and I don't think they were, you know, of um, a conscious age, if that's a term, um, in '99. Mm. So they're not they're not coming from you know that sort of experiential background when they talk about it. Um, but it's like you're not going to see anything else. And Dutton um, suggesting that there be you know another referendum uh, done better if he wins the next election. Uh, I don't think there's any substance to that. And I mean, it this was a bad the, look. the leader of the Conservative Opposition Party in Australia who's on the right wing of the right wing party. And uh, yeah, the yeah. idea that they would be enthusiastic about picking up this baton yeah. after it fails is... Uh, like a I'd referendum. surprised. Referendum 2.0. Um, yeah. It's not going to work. And it was also a bad look because his, his captain's pick appointed shadow spokesperson for you know, essentially Aboriginal affairs uh, in Jacinta Price... Um, was massive on the idea and was vocal about that. So it was a bad look for the no cam- no vote campaign, um, I thought, over the last week or 10 days or whatever it's been. Um, but it's, it's not going to happen, getting back to the point. Um, and I don't think anything else uh, would come around, whether it be, you know, in any other form. And there's been a lot of different um, model options i guess what about a, a what about a treaty jack i mean one one side of you know one argument on this side of the of the first nations no campaign is well the referendum might fail and you might not get another referendum but who need, why do where is it cast in stone that you need a referendum mm. uh, why can't we have a treaty yeah 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 it's weird that one um in victoria we've kind of had the benefit of observing the treaty process the victoria treaty process um, now, what? where's the best place to start? I guess this is the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is, again, a democratically elected representative body. Um, it started three, four years ago. Um, in the electoral process, which is overseen by the Victorian Electoral Commission, BEC, um, they didn't have a massive turnout by you know, by standards that, you know, the broader public uh, ballots may have. But it was a starting point and 
the last, the most recent elections. Um, this body is in its second iteration now, uh, as of I think it was April or May. Um, at this point, oh, for those elections, they got a larger turnout, so it's kind of steadily building. Um, they've Aboriginal uh, people aged 16 and above can vote, so it's kind of recognising that there's a broader population base that's younger, um, so they're involved. Um, but it's gradually climbing in terms of the participation uh, number. Um, and, you know... I'm sorry, lots... how are these people participating, Jack? What are they... Oh, just, just by voting. Just by enrolling and voting. Um, so right. initially, uh, you know, the numbers didn't look great, but um, the way that, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't sort of scrutinise them through the same lens as you would a broader ballot, like a state election or a federal election or whatever. Yeah, right. And what are they voting for? How does that relate to a treaty? Well, they they vote for um, uh, representatives from areas, um, and these representatives then are part, you know, form part of the membership of the assembly body. Now, for the first four years, the assembly body was to establish um, the guidelines uh, for um, a treaty, for a treaty structure, to put all the furniture in place. Um, and then with this second iteration of the body, which will sit for three or four years now, their role is to negotiate a statewide treaty. We're talking about there's going to be a number of treaties, but a statewide treaty will be right. negotiated by this assembly, this democratically elected body. Um so when I hear people say, don't matter about the referendum, don't matter about the voice, we'll just go straight to treaty, my natural sort of response is, well, who's going to negotiate that? And they go, oh, well, mm. you know, we'll just nominate some people from different areas. And they go, okay, what do you end up with there? Oh, you know, a group of people. What's that called? Sounds a lot like the voice. And, like, that's right. just common sense, isn't it? Um, who's right. going to negotiate the treaty? Like, we're talking a na- national treaty, nationwide treaty. Who's going to negotiate that? And Jack, weren't there a series of steps that were kind of signed off on during the Uluru statement that that said that you you do the voice first and you have the body and then you progress towards a treaty? Yeah, that was the thinking that came from the Uluru statement. Um, yeah, and I think that was rooted in some logic or rationale that's in that uh, restorative justice kind of. Uh, approach to things that's worked internationally. They didn't just pull it out of thin air. Um, pretty sure that it was modelled on a number of you know case studies internationally. Um, but you know, it's as I said, it's common sense. Someone's got to negotiate a treaty. So whoever or whatever you uh, form uh, or model that's going to negotiate that treaty, um, that's starting to look a lot like what. You know, this model is suggesting is called the voice, right? And uh, yeah, I, I I must say I am always baffled by the idea that if the referendum fails, you'll be more likely to proceed to a treaty than if that, it succeeds. That. Like, yeah, yeah. It well, just it's it's a misunderstanding of human psychology, I think, and of just the, and the, of the institutional inertia that exists in political systems and in. Mm. In cultures, uh, well, with you know, as I said, with the benefit of having observed the process thus far in Victoria, um, it's not just the establishment of that representative body that's called the Assembly here. Um, it's all the pieces of furniture that were put in place over the past four years or so. They probably were in train much longer than that. 
Um, so they not even going to start or weren't able to start negotiating a statewide treaty until they could establish more equal footing for you know that Aboriginal, uh, well, just let's just say Aboriginal people to negotiate with the state because there was a power imbalance there on you know large proportions, whether it be financial resources or just you know power structure, power imbalance. Um, you know, communities just not having uh, the organisation um, to understand what they wanted to negotiate for starters, let alone you know a mm. pragmatic way of doing it. So things like the um, uh, the treaty, what is it, the, the strategic uh, SFD, I think the acronym is Strategic Negotiation Fund or something like that. Um, so, you know, it was established and then there was the Treaty Negotiating Authority or the Treaty Authority, um, and it's kind of like this independent umpire, they describe it as, um, that's kind of going to oversee the statewide treaty negotiations and then all of these nation um, negotiations for these smaller treaties. Um, so you can't just, like, and this obviously takes, one, you need uh resources to be able to establish these things and time as a resource. Um, so you're not just going to leap, you know, referendums down, you beauty, you know, next year we're going to go straight to treaty. Um, just going off the Vic model, um, mm. it's four to five probably longer years anyway um, before you even start to do these things. And this is the main point out of all of the conversations around this. Over that time period, You've got people in a disadvantage, like the worst disadvantaged communities in Australia, like legit just, you know, actually dying from things that could be remedied um, with better policy, with, you know, advice around better shaping policy, better implementation of policy, um, better resourcing of, you know, health services, things like that. Like the status quo that, and, you know, this is coming out of the mouths of yes advocates as well, the status quo that's in place hasn't, um, you know, served Aboriginal people and their aspirations and rights very well at all. Mm. And, you know, that's reflected in the disparity within the, you know, closing the gap uh, measures. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that's the urgency around the voice that is is, is most central, most core and key. People yeah. are dying at the moment, and if you get a voice in, you know, people are dying from all sorts of things, shitty water, um, you know, housing overcrowding and housing unavailability of housing in some of these communities. Um, that's contributing to all sorts of dysfunction and, you know, um, harm in terms of health. Uh, like, you can just go through and name off your fingers. Um, but, you know, a voice can provide uh, insight, useful advice to impl implement, well, to shape policy and then implement systems that improve these things and alleviate those, those um, you know, pressures or whatever. Um, and people will, their life will improve. Their life, the length of their life, the, the standard of their life, their well-being overall will improve sharply. Um, and by, you know, whatever decisions go around delaying um you know, putting that kind of mechanism or establishing that mechanism, um, you know, it's, it's going to take time and, and time Jack, these people you, don't have. 
When you say that these that this body will improve, will rapidly increase the the pace of improvement of real people's lives, that's the point at which I think the opponents of the referendum from the other perspective would jump in. Because so far we've been addressing this question of, oh, it doesn't go far enough, uh, the voice referendum, we should go straight to a treaty, you know, it's tokenistic, it's just uh, the white man within the institutions of the constitution, uh, you know, within the systems of oppression, throwing a bone that is convenient rather than going all all out and actually recognising the sovereignty of First Nations. Then the other sort of almost opposite uh, no position seems to be rather than it not rather than it not going far enough, the referendum actually goes too far because it's divisive and it doesn't um, it doesn't treat us all equally by addressing people on a needs basis. That we actually instead of funding all of these you know bureaucrats in Canberra having a talk fest about Indigenous issues. What we need is for that money instead to be spent on bread and butter matters and funneled directly into regional Australia and help helping uh, First Nations people on the ground. How do you know that the voice, that this new body will expedite an improvement in conditions on the ground? Uh, well, if we're looking at the model that seems to be, and I'm not, I'd have to go back to check to uh, see if Albo has actually said this is the model that we're looking at. Um, but the model that seems to be the one they have in mind for this voice proposal is the one that was put forward by the uh, Tom Carmer and Marcia Langton in their final report to the last government, which was a coalition government. Um, and the coalition government, you know, just by the side, by the way, uh, they were, they were um, pretty wrapped with it and looking towards implementing some of the early stages of it before they got turfed out at the federal election. Um, so they were big on it then, and now they're not big on it. Um, but if you look at that model, uh, this is – and actually, like as a journalist uh, and as an Aboriginal man, this is the bit about the voice that I found most interesting. Um, now it's more to do with the uh, information warfare and disinformation. Back a few months or weeks ago, it was around this detail. Um, it is fed from uh, local communities upwards. So this whole rhetoric propaganda around it's going to be stuff with Canberra bureaucrats getting you know getting fat on bloody lunches or whatever. Um, it's not true. Completely inaccurate. The model that was put forward that seems to be the one that's being embraced by Albanese, um, fed up from local communities and also these bodies, these local voices, um, are formed differently. This is a really interesting uh, aspect to me. So some of them um, may be formed, say, for example, like the Victorian or well, the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is democratically elected, um, and what I would suggest is, you know, orthodox kind of way that to... Um, you know, Western thinking in terms of elections. Others uh, may be appointing local voices like the Dillac Council uh, up in Arnhem Land that we heard about at Gama, um, where they're, you know, it's chieftains, local chieftains from clans and stuff that, that form this Elders Council. Um, it's called the Dillac Council. Uh, the really interesting one is Torres Strait Islanders. So they would have two local um, voices that fed upwards into this national voice. Um, one of them um, would be based on the islands uh, or, you know, come from 
uh, be representative of people still on the Torres Strait Islands. Mm. And another Torres Strait Island local voice would be representative of the diaspora that is based predominantly around Cairns, um, but elsewhere in northern Queensland. So they'd have kind of two representative bodies um, because obviously the concerns of the diaspora may be a little bit different than the concerns of uh, the people on the islands. Um, yeah. So that's pretty cool. Uh, or, you know, if I don't think it's cool, it's at least interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and else, you know, somewhere else may have a completely different way that I haven't even thought about. The other interesting thing to point out is that a lot of these local voices are already established, um, like the Dillac Council. Um, Central Land Council uh, is another one that you pretty much, and I'm not sure they would do this, but they could um, if there was an issue um, in the future around you know, establishing some of these things in terms of resourcing. Um, they could, uh, you know, Central Land Council has uh, representatives from, and I forget the number, but a lot of different um, communities and homelands um, that form up the Central Lands Council. Um, so, but all of these things, all of these councils, all these smaller local bodies, um, they're hearing about the concerns, issues um, that are impacting uh, people, you know, uh, in community. And then those, they're carrying those concerns and issues up and over and down to Canberra. Um, and also the makeup of that voice body in Canberra, the national voice body, isn't fixed, like it's changing. Um, and this is all in the detail of this report, which is available online. I, you know, I don't know some of the rhetoric that's out there, that no details available is just completely you know, wrong because it's all there. Um, and then, right, but yeah. isn't, it still, isn't it still to be determined whether or how those representatives will be selected? I mean, do we know yeah, yeah, yeah. whether they'll be – yeah. Well, it depends on each – uh, each local voice or local body, um, you know, in some cases it's it's more pertinent for um, custom, you know, customary law to inform who gets appointed. Um, in some cases uh, for these you know, local bodies, it you know might be more pertinent for a more Western you know ballot uh, to take place. Um, it's you know, and that's why. Potentially, that's why it's difficult for to convey to a broad public exactly what you know mm. what, what form or system it's going to take because yep, you've these got very different things. populations in very yeah. different geographies uh, around and the, the other landmass. That's um, right, and so yeah. yeah, sorry. And the other the other important thing is um, you know it's not a it's not fixed. None of it is fixed in terms of the design um, principles or you know, concepts. Um, this is about. This is, you know, in the report itself, this is about um, a starting point rather than an end point. So, um, you know, just may start uh, doing it in one way. Another government comes in and says that's not really working as effectively as it could. You know, we're going to establish it so it works like this. The voice body has to, because, um, you know, it's up to the government about how it is structured and how it operates. It's just that the government can't get rid of it entirely. Um so, you know, it could change every, what was the federal one, three mm. years, three and a half years or whatever. And Jack, one of the things that I hear most from my radio listeners who are, who are, who fret about it, uh, will they'll say things like, well, we don't know how many people this is going to be. We don't know what their compensation is going to be. We don't know how, how large mm. the body is, is going to be like that. They're like, you know, we're, we're being asked to whether or not we want to order from a particular restaurant, but we haven't seen the menu yet. 
Yeah, yeah. It's funny how most of the reservations uh, that people have come back to, are they going to get paid for being on this body? Um, and and will they will these <laughs> Aboriginal people seek reparations and which is more money? Why should they have money? Um, and it's just you know that it all that fear or anxiety or whatever it is um, that drives that sort of thinking always comes into play around these issues. I don't get it because if you're I mean, going that, to work every fair, day, also, you get paid. Be, don't you? Yeah, but to be fair, to be as fair as possible to the people who have reservations. It would make a difference if there were a thousand people in this thing earning oh, a million dollars a year versus if there were, you know, I don't know, fifty yeah. people uh, yeah. making a hundred grand a year. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could take. In terms of the detail that's available, um, that you know, it's two uh, representatives from each local body that go into the national body, uh, gender balance as well. Um, and yeah, I forget the final makeup uh, of the national body. Um, but the detail is in that report. And in terms of the local bodies, again, um, you know, they could look like a Dillac Council, which has got, say, you know, just off the top of my head, uh, eight different uh, lead or chieftains, or, you know, whatever is the best term for that, you know, clan leaders. Um, it could look like the Cape York Council of Elders, which has got, you know, again, off the top of my head, fucking six, eight, I don't know. Um or it could look like Central Land Council, which has more than that. Um, so, but out of either, out of any of those local um, those local voices, you know, you got two going into the, the national voice. Um, in terms of uh, wages and stuff, I don't think there is detail in the report that I've seen uh, around that. Um, presumably, it would be above, you know, award wages, um, but it wouldn't be excessive because whatever budget would be coming out of, um, you know, the overall Indigenous Affairs budget, I imagine, and um, like the uh, the urgency here is to use that resource into improving, uh, you know, policies or programs uh, on the ground. So you wouldn't be uh, taking from that pile to, you know, rob from the other pile. And as you said, you know, the successive governments are going to be able to change all of these parameters. The one thing they're not going to be able to do is get rid of this body. That's another thing that I hear from people who are concerned. Like, why do you have to bake it into the very constitution of the nation? <laughs> well, that's yeah. what, that's yeah, an easy so, one. Like, that's yeah. that's at the core. And that is, it goes back to the, you know, at the top of our conversation. There's been so many of these representative bodies that um, just get scrapped. Um you know, with a stroke of a pen by incoming governments. And it can be just that political, uh, you know, bipartisanship that they don't like what was established by the last um, government, what that government represented, so they'll scrap them. Uh, that's what it feels like uh, to Aboriginal people. Um, right. I mean, so the downside of having uh, a body like the voice to parliament, which is legis- which would be legislated instead of in the constitution, would be that the fickle whims of a partisan, you know, political uh, uh, hack could be <laughs> exerted, inflicted upon it, and it could be abolished. But the upside of not having it in the constitution is that if it were to become uh, useless, corrupt, uh, pointless, misguided, uh, co-opted by special interests, unrepresentative in some way. Then you could uh, take it out the back behind the shed and uh, and do it in, which is something that you can't do if you've uh, you've put it into the constitution. Is there any 
what like what do you say to people who have a concern about that? Well, it's not based in reality or fact. Is probably more accurate. Um, but what, I mean, it's, it is based in the fact that you can't take it out of the constitution. That's right. You can't take it out of the constitution. But if those concerns that you just uh, put forward there were legitimate, um, what the incoming government can do is restructure what the voice is. So if you know, in whatever scenario it may be the incoming government can shape the makeup of the voice. Um, so it can address a lot of concerns that it may have uh, around the voice. Now, they, they can't scrap it entirely. It has to be there, um, but they can change the structure of it. The um, So what's the best yes case? Well, the best yes case um, that I've heard um, and I've heard, you know, I've travelled around a fair bit talking with um, people in community for pretty much a fair bit of Australia now. And it's what I, you know, the, the most common sort of response is an aspirational yes um, from Aboriginal people. Uh, a lot of people, you know, don't know the detail of it. Um, you know, we asked a, a series of questions to kind of, you know, to get uh, a picture of of what the thinking is and the situation is for people when it comes to this proposal, um, and although you know they were like a lot of non-indigenous communities, they were saying, "Where's the detail? We'd like to see more detail." Um, it was like when we got down to it, how would you vote? They go, "Well, of course I'd vote yes." Like, why would I vote no? Like, so that's what I came to describe as an aspirational yes. They wanted something to. Um, be representative of their concerns um, uh, and why would they vote against anything that endeavoured to further their aspirations or to further their rights. Um, So I think that was the most compelling case uh, for me personally. Um, I kind of approached it um, as, you know, a journalist probably should in, you know, impartial and objective and all that sort of stuff and the more i heard those sorts of um uh those sorts of responses it was like who am i to kind of stand and uh to oppose that that sort of thinking and these these Mm. also you know coming from elders and and if they weren't elders they were older um community members um so yeah that for me that was the most compelling um but Again, uh, with the benefit of having observed how the, the Vic Treaty process has, has sort of developed, um, it's it's not. You know, I've said it earlier. It's it's not an end point. It's a starting point. So um, it may work. You know, starts on day one if it gets up is is and will be. Um, you know three or four years down the track, uh, well, structurally it could look different, but also um, it's, it's not about you know implementing something and then it not changing anymore. Um, yeah. I think a lot of – it's just going to facilitate more good. This is my personal belief now, uh, currently. It's got, it would f- facilitate more good than it would um, create problems. What do you make politically of the multicultural question about getting multicultural communities on board? There's, um, I've, I've spoken with people who work 
with uh, you know Chinese small Chinese Australian small business people in the southwest of Sydney, for example, who are a bit baffled and confused by the whole thing and feel like I thought this was a multicultural country where everyone's treated treated equally. Uh, you try to create a level playing field for everybody, but everybody can get ahead. We don't do we don't pick favourites. We're against racism and so on. And yet here's this one community that gets its special carve out. Where's the carve out for the Chinese people or the Sikh people or the young Muslim girls or whatever that might be? Oh well, uh, the myth of the level playing field needs uh, to be busted. I mean, these are national narratives that have you know been. Uh, propagated uh, by successive governments for decades. Um, so the fact of the matter is Aboriginal people are not on a level playing field. And again, you'd look at the disparity in so many of the um, closing the gap measures. Um, it hasn't been a level playing field since forever. So, you know... Right, but I mean, wouldn't the I mean the presumably the Chinese Australian who arrives with nothing, or the Vietnamese person who arrives with nothing, or the the young lesbian Muslim girl who's living with a disability? These are all people who are disadvantaged, and to the extent that there is no level playing field, all of these people feel that one has to construct a society in which all of those people are treated, uh, if not equally, then aspirationally the same way and that this idea of a, of a voice to parliament runs counter to that egalitarianism in Australia. Well, they may hold those fears, but it's, it's not running counter to the egalitarianism. It is um, addressing this, that disparity. It's, it's creating an even playing field. So if, if you have um, you know, people in those scenarios that you suggested come in, um, and, and they, you know, for whatever reason, their whole community um, was affected in, t- in the same ways. We see uh, entire Aboriginal communities affected by things like lack of drinking water, um, uh, overcrowding in housing, uh, culturally, you know, well, health services that are non-existent. Um, all of those measures that we see... Um, they would have governments um, prepared to do something uh, to, to improve that situation. Um, that is not the case uh, with Aboriginal community. While the government endeavours um, to improve the situation and close those gaps, it you know, has failed to do so. Um, even if we just go back to 2008, uh, was it 2008 when the you know, idea for closing uh, closing the gaps kind of came up and they started to monitor them and there's been a, a number of uh, reviews about how the method and uh, measures about uh, what's successful and what's not shifting the goalposts uh, between 2008 and the present but even if we just go back to that stage uh, it demonstrates that the government uh, fails to uh, successfully address many and most of these issues now, across that period, we've seen the establishment of the Coalition of Peaks, which is uh, a body of community-run uh, or community-led organisations advising governments, um, and just that example proves that things uh, get better when Aboriginal uh, people um, are heard onto these issues, whether it's the shaping of the policy or implementing the policy, um, operating 
some of these systems um, in community. Um, so with that model there, um, there's no reason for the government to sort of say, well, it doesn't work because clearly it does. Um, it, it needs to be, you know, bolstered up to the to the next stage of, of having a national body that can do that. It's, it's more representative than the Coalition of the Peaks. And so in your view, this is this is really about a pragmatic way of addressing concrete needs because I, I also hear the argument that there is something unique about First Nations people on this continent and they basically have a right on the basis of their enduring heritage, legacy, sovereignty on this land to be treated differently from any other group. But it sounds like you're saying that if it were the case that, for example, Somali refugees had the same persistent, entrenched uh, like metrics of disadvantage as First Nations Australians do, then there would be a legitimate case for having a constitutionally enshrined body of Somali refugees advising uh, government. Well, it would not necessarily need to be constitutionally enshrined in that instance. Um, I mean, a lot of these lobby groups that exist um, currently and uh, you know, um, shape policy, uh, shape rollout of policy, um, you know, they have various interests of various communities, um, you know, uh, as their motivation or as their guiding uh, principle. These things exist. Uh, Aboriginal people... Um, don't have one of those lobby groups. Like I'm talking about Aboriginal communities don't have those lobby groups um, operating within the halls of parliament. So this is one, um, you know, uh, one way of addressing that lack of, uh, uh, you know, that gap as well. Mm. Why has it been so hard to close the gap? Well, general answer is that uh, the people that are developing the policy and implementing the policy and rolling out the policy within communities don't listen to the advice of the Aboriginal people that um, are from those communities. Um, and, and that's, Is that advice given with a single voice? Because one concern well, is sometimes, well, who, who's doing the talking if these are communities where there are high rates of dysfunction, whether it's domestic violence or a disadvantage or a lack of education, then on whose behalf are the people who are speaking for them speaking? You know, there are sometimes, there's sometimes conflicting advice. There is conflicting advice within community uh, as with all communities. Um, I'm thinking more along the lines of big policy that comes in is not guided uh, with the best interests of Aboriginal people um, in mind some of the time. Um, other policies that do come in with the best uh, interests and well-being of Aboriginal people in uh, front of mind, or in, you know, in the first instance, um, come in uh, are implemented. Elements of them don't work. Uh, it becomes apparent to communities pretty quickly. Who do they tell? They've got no one to tell. Um, it doesn't get carried, you know, back up the chain. Um, and these sorts of things stay in place for. I don't know, say a decade or two decades, um, and they're harming communities. But it's generally, uh, in many instances, a pretty simple fix or adjustment um, uh, or a simple adjustment other things that these communities are kind of recommending and they, they don't get heard. Um, 
you know, some of the big ones, uh, you have non-Indigenous people come up with these ideas, write a paper. We've seen this in the past with the, uh, the Abbott government, write a paper um, and these things, that these, some of the people that write these papers aren't even involved in government. Uh, they are business interests. And the next thing you have, employment policies go into place um, or initiatives like, uh, you know, the, the debit cards, um, which, you know, over, again, a couple of decades was proved to be more harmful on communities than what it was beneficial. Broadly speaking, not in every case. Um, so it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. So in that uh, hypothetical, we have a businessman perhaps um, develop a paper and then the government adopt that paper as policy. Um, you would have uh, a, a group of people um, on hand to say, oh, yeah, look, that's not a bad idea, but, um, you know, that bit there, not great. You know, there's a better way of doing it. Have a listen to this. They've uh, got a proposal around this other bit over here. Like that's how it would function. Um, but that's you know, uh, how it's likely to function, just looking at the way that the assembly is in operation down here. You mentioned, Jack, in the early 90s uh, when you were starting out. Uh, what would you think if you fast-forwarded 30 years, if I could show you Australia today, would you be pleased or displeased about the progress we've made on First Nations issues? Uh, so, hang on, I've, I've lost track. So if we're in 1992 or whatever, we're in, fast Yeah, forward. we're in, in the early 90s, yeah. <laughs> um, look, I was still having um, – I was only a very young man, 17 or something, 16, 17. I was having arguments with people about, um, you know, being called – Aboriginal, like they would just, uh, they wouldn't call you, you say, for example, you know, you can call me Guri, like Guri is probably more accurate than, than referring to me as Indigenous or Aboriginal. Those sorts of arguments or, or conversations, people just didn't back then. And I, this was in um, an area where there was a large um, population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders uh, and other islanders as well. Um, but non-Indigenous people just had uh, less of an idea um, even how to address Aboriginal people. Um, so in that respect, it's improved. Um, I think over the last 10 to 15 years, it's got better in some ways. But, I mean, again, you keep going back to some of the disparities and disadvantages and stuff, and it has improved greatly. Well, forget 92, it hasn't improved much since 72. Mm. There's a very noticeable, I don't, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, a very noticeable shift among white self-congratulatory um, elites in the amount of mental space that First Nations Australians uh, occupies. I've noticed it over the course of my growing up that mm. uh, the rise of acknowledgements of country, the um, the sort of performative uh, um, back patting patting ourselves on the back for being deeply concerned about uh, First Nations issues, the flying of the flag, and now signalling our virtuousness for being behind the voice referendum. Mm. They all create a. a 
a, a sort of a matrix or a fabric of of what feels like tremendous progress from my detached mm. elitist white perch mm. Mm. and i am often i often check myself and think actually you know what's the real guiding star here what are we actually shooting for if we're shooting for for genuine on the ground improvement is this whole thing a bit of a game is it a bit of a wank or is it necessary to get things changed on the ground what do you reckon i think uh it will facilitate change on the ground i think yeah it's, it's difficult to um um I, I think it's difficult to argue against that. Uh, and again, just going back to the Coalition of Peaks, um, they say, the, the Coalition of Peaks say that, um, you know, some of the conversations they've had with governments have improved, the understanding of, of governments has improved since they started having regular meetings as part of the, the COAG or whatever it is. Um, but again, this is all kind of small steps. Um I was just thinking as you were talking, like going back when I was say in primary school, you didn't see the Aboriginal flag flown anywhere really. I grew up mm. in a small town, uh, mid north coast of New South Wales. Um, knew that I was Aboriginal from you know, I don't know two, three, I don't know as far back as brain started working. Um, so, you know, and, and in community as well. And we were always on the periphery and we didn't see things like welcome to countries or flags or anything like that. Um, very much uh, part of, if not that, you know, that great silence or, you know, as it's described, we're very much um, of the disappearing or the dispersal. Um, and I think what improved say from that period through to the present, is um, acknowledgement uh, and recognition around our presence within that area. Um, but sort of on my uh, father's side, which is the non-Indigenous side of the family, um, some of those that older crew and past now, but, you know, back in the 80s and that, um, they just didn't countenance the idea that Aboriginal people, um, you know, were present on any of that land area that they lived on. Mm. Um, and I think I can look back now, back to back to home, to country, and, and that's changed. So in that that's an improvement. But you look at uh, some of the issues that are plaguing even my own community up there, um, and, you know, they're the same as in remote and very remote communities, uh, lack of housing, um, health disparities and stuff. Um, they haven't been addressed. And that's, you know, three or four hours, probably four and a half hours drive from Sydney. Um, and you don't even have to go that far. You can just no, uh, I mean, drive you can, out You can to, stay in Sydney and you, yeah, yeah, and you can see to, disparities. You know, Mount Druitt, Blacktown, wherever, and um, and see the same sorts of gross uh, disparities there. So, yeah, look, you know, at least now um, – well, the other thing, like at least now we're present to finish that thought. Um, right. The other thing, you know, it's not within my life, it was you weren't allowed to be proud of being Aboriginal. 
either. And this is just going back to the you know, 80s, potentially the early 90s in yeah. some of these towns. Um, I, you know, these days it's kind of cool, you know. It's it's the fad, and I think Black Lives Matter had a, a, a bit to do with that. But there's so many people that mm. want to identify as being, you know, um, indigenous, um, uh, and it wasn't cool when I was growing up. And I hear that quite a bit, actually. Um, people in communities, so it wasn't cool, you know, back then. Anyway. Um, that yeah. potentially could be seen as an improvement, you know. Um, but it's well, certainly, yeah. You, know, you yeah. go into some of these communities, and um, you know, my one of my uncles died. At, I think he was mid sixties, um, and that's just uh, that, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. You had mm. you had chronic diseases, and they were preventable, and uh, he died. And that was you know in Port Macquarie, which, as I said, is probably it's not that far from Sydney, so. No. Yep. Okay. Well, then, in the let's fast forward into the future. And since we've just talked about what today is like in comparison to the past, uh, you know, we missed a generation of change after the Republic referendum you mentioned earlier. Let's assume this referendum passes, and we go at one generation into the future, and we're in the middle of the twenty-first century. What's your best case scenario? Like, can you articulate the vision of the place that First Nations Australians hold in Australian national life that would be, you know, that where you would feel like, yeah, we, we, we did it. Oh, it's difficult to look that far ahead. Um, you know, when you're dealing with stuff, uh, as urgently in the present, I think, um, and this is just person, me personally, um, I think having, I mean, we kind of see more Aboriginal people, uh, more Aboriginal parliamentarians, uh, or parliamentarians that are of Aboriginal descent is probably an accurate way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that'll, that'll increase. Uh, I don't know. It's, like I said, it's, it's really difficult for me to sort of cast that far forward. Um, yeah, I'm 47 uh, next year, I think. Um, I, going uh, in, in Aboriginal years, I've got about um, probably 40, 50, 20 years left before I'm, I'm gone. So... Uh, and I'm an older father as well. That's they're the urgent things that I kind of think about. So I don't know about thirty years ahead, but I don't know, in ten years, I'd like to see the average that I, you know, I'm going to live another ten years, so I can hang out with my kids a bit. Hmm. Do you think of yourself as tracking the longevity of the median Indigenous Australian? When in reality, isn't most of that reflective of access to healthcare, access to nutrition, uh, you know, um, other social ills like addiction and living in remote areas of Australia and whatever that is? Well, that's right. Yeah, this, this, I mean, that's the complex. But by which I mean, you're not you're not subject to those factors. Uh, well, generation intergenerationally and transgenerationally, I am. So my health isn't great. Uh, because the housing that my parents or my mother had when I was young, um, you know, was in a, a position that, uh, in a location um, that exposed me to some 
um, stuff that affected you know my respiratory and you know development and stuff like that uh, because mm. could not afford and was not allowed to live in other areas um, uh, you know that could have prevented uh, exposure to those things so I was um, but many of those measures um, you know affect people Aboriginal people in urban areas um, you know these things are not isolated to, you know, remote and very remote communities. Mm. It's impossible to predict. It's, uh, it's such a big, it's such a big thing to get our arms around. Thanks for breaking it down for us, Jack. It's, uh, it's useful. What's your, uh, what's your general sense of where the nation's mood is around the referendum lastly? Well, this is what I've been doing all day, all month. <laughs> um, Look, the polls suggest the commercial polls. I'm talking about the ones that the newspapers are reporting on. Um, you know, there's, there's been the steady decline in people that are supporting it uh, as the no creeps up. Um, speaking with some of the people that are involved in Yes Two Three and Uluru Dialogue, they're looking at a different set of polls. Um, three poles in particular, and uh, these three poles are squaring up in terms of um, support for it. So, and also undecideds, you keep, this is kind of answered in over the last month, and in the, um, you know, the discourse over the last month, that uh, the undecideds, uh, you know, 30, 40% out there are going to determine whether it gets up or not. Um, so, look, if I was a betting man, which I am, um, and if there was a market on the referendum, which there probably is, but I haven't been able to find it yet, um, <laughs> I would plonk money on uh, the yes vote. You get good odds um, at the moment, and I reckon that um, there is more uh, goodwill towards it out there that uh, perhaps the mainstream media uh, is not, you know, um, not hearing from or not sampling. Um, yeah, that's where I'd go. Mm. At the moment, though, for me, it's really just, I've just, um, as I said earlier or mentioned earlier, um, some of the information warfare around it, uh, the disinformation, um, yeah, just astonishing. Uh, you know, we're seeing... A lot of, um, you know, what we observed from afar in, when, when Trump was getting around America um, and Brexit, uh, we've seen a lot of those kind of tactics um, being deployed over here. Um, so, yeah, I just find that well, you know, fascinating uh, but also quite alarming. Um, yeah. And I just, like, there's a story down here where uh, somebody used the assembly to... Um, distribute a fake letter in a rural sort of area um, just to stoke up that fear about Aboriginal people coming to take their backyards. Um, mm. And it's just like the, ex the sophistication and extent of that deception. Um, like it's, it's real and it's yeah. happening. Uh, and they're the sorts of things that, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty rotten to see. Yeah, I've seen one of those letters. I was visiting a friend in northern New South Wales, and uh, they got they got letter dropped of uh, a thing saying that you know whatever what everyone doesn't realise is that constitutionally, once the 
once the voice body is set up, that means that acts as a trigger of having acknowledged the sovereignty of the original sovereignty of First Nations people, and that means that there will then be a High Court challenge which will abolish private property in Australia because actually First Nations people own everything, which was recognised when the yes vote went through, and like there's this arcane yeah. constitutional argument. And yeah. I just have to believe that most people, the vast, vast majority of people, see those things and just go, well, that doesn't sound like it's very credible. Yeah, well, I have to believe that as well because it's pretty despairing. You know, I have fluctuating. Um, it's been difficult. That's another thing that should we yeah. should probably touch on. Um, yeah. Aboriginal people, uh, it's been a rough, you know, it's been a rough couple of centuries, I suppose. But um, since uh, well, just August um, last year to this point, um, it's been really tough. And, you know, as I go around talking with people, um, yeah, it's like, how are you doing? And it's just that really pointed sort of um, question or tone about how it's asked because everyone knows this is a testing bloody time to be a black fella, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. how you're holding up sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think remember with the um, same-sex plebiscite and all of the scrapping, the rhetorical scrapping and, and political scrapping around that, Um on the other side, or even during, but, you know, in the assessment of how it went, there was a lot of, that was horrible and um, it was unnecessary and, you know, shouldn't have shouldn't have been in a situation where, um, you know, gender diverse, um, LGBTQ, you know, all that sort of stuff became um, targeted by some of these opponents, the same-sex marriage. And it was... Uh, it received some um, uh, attraction or it received audience or whatever. I think because Aboriginal people uh, only whatever it is, 2.8 or 3% or whatever it is at the moment, percent of the population, um, the scope of, um, uh, of you know, what we're, what we're carrying, what we're dealing with has kind of been overlooked a fair bit uh, or mm-hmm. it's, it's been glided past. Um so, yeah, I hope at some point, um, you know, someone kind of uh, acknowledges that it, it hasn't been easy going at all for Aboriginal people, uh, particularly over the last 12 months since the PM announced uh, some detail around the referendum at Gama last year. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is avoidable uh, and it would be good if, um, you know, Aboriginal people weren't being harmed in the process of, uh, of this entire referendum uh, proposal. Jack, take care of yourself uh, in all ways, in, uh, you know, not just uh, also, not just personally and emotionally going through this time, but also professionally. Don't burn the candle at both ends quite too much because uh, it's going to get intense and there's going to be a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot going on over the next four weeks. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's it's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, yeah, we're in the shoot now. Uh, There's only one way to go and it's towards October 14 for a journalist. And, um, you know, I'd prefer to be doing other, you know, lighthearted stories or, you know, fun stories. But, yeah, no, this is a slog and I'm uh, looking forward to the other side. Will you take a holiday in November? Taking a holiday in October. (laughs) 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 Pretty much uh, once the, whatever it is, the Saturday is out of the way, um, I'm on a train headed up the coast. Looking forward to that. That's what's getting me through. (laughs) Good on you. Thanks, Jack. (laughs) Thanks, mate. Catch you.